You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. All right, this is Abraham. And this is Miranda. And so that must mean this is Why We Do What We Do. I want to start by asking you some questions. Okay. For funsies. Now, how long did it take you to get good at doing editing? Uh, I mean, arguably, maybe I'm still not good at editing. Yeah. <laughs> That's fair. Um, as far as, you know, fluent and competent and, and not scrambling to try and figure things out, sheesh. Um, a dozen episodes, probably more. And did you find that as you... And so we're talking, obviously, about auditory editing with the podcast mm. specifically. I should have clarified that at the start. But did you find that... Um, across those dozen you were getting better and better as you as you practice them oh for sure yeah you you know there's certain things you um learn to pick up more quickly there's certain you know just uh even just the the motor um skills of being able to click and move things you you find that you get to be better at that yeah so most certainly but you know there's always new things that come up and and new ways to improve for sure I know that, so I do some data analysis stuff using Excel for one of one of the jobs that I do. And when I do that, I have, I, I definitely recognize that from the onset when I would go through and try and, and enter a single like report that uh, it would take me a really long time. And now I can cruise through several of them really quickly and I, and mm-hmm. I recognize pretty easily how much I struggled initially, how over time I adapted to the placement of my fingers on the keys and the mouse and where things go and where to click and how to efficiently move through the spreadsheet. And that whole idea of that improving performance and decreased time to complete something, um, that, that idea is discussed as something called the learning curve. And so in this discussion today, as you already know, we're going to talk about the idea of the learning curve, who named it, to the best of our ability to de- de- uh, determine that, uh, what it means, and especially the the big experiment that uh, has described very eloquently and elegantly what a learning curve looks like in sort of a laboratory setting. And this is attributable to a few different psychologists. So largely we're going to actually be describing the experiment by Edward Thorndike, uh, but we'll be giving credit to some other psychologists that describe the learning curve as well. Right. And the first person who actually described it in terms of the the pattern that one might see in the data that sort of looks like it looks like a curve. And that's why where the name comes from that uh, his name was uh, Herman Ebbinghaus um, in 1885. And after after Ebbinghaus, there was some dispute about sort of the origin of the term learning curve, who actually came up with that and said it the first time. Um, some people credited this to uh, Edward Thorndike, who we're going to talk about in a moment. Some credited this to a man named Edward Tichin, um, which I actually thought was Tichner, but the dates would not have made sense for Tichner. And then some also credit it to Ebbinghaus, the original guy who described it. So it's a little unclear from what I could find where that name actually came from. Uh, certainly Thorndike used it in, in his research, and we'll get to him. Um, but it's otherwise, the, the first person seems to be a little bit in dispute. So introducing Thorndike, he was actually born in Williamsburg, Massachusetts, and he was an American psychologist. Yeah, he graduated from Harvard in 1897, where he did his dissertation. Yeah, and while he was at Harvard, he worked with William James, and he's another important psychologist, and you've probably heard of him. He's been on our list to do an episode ever since, like, day one of the podcast, and he was really interested in um, animal behavior. Right, so once... 
Thorndike graduated, he returned to studying education psychology, which was really his initial interest. And he had his doctoral dissertation, which was published in 1911, as animal intelligence. And he proposed his two behavioral laws, uh, these being the law of effect and the law of exercise. And the law of effect is pretty interesting. It essentially says that behavioral responses that were most closely followed by some kind of satisfying or pleasing result were most likely to become established patterns of behavior, those, those behavior patterns, and to occur again in response to the same situation he and he described this as the same sort of stimulus yeah and this was later modified where thorndike stated that rewards for appropriate behavior always strengthened associations and then punishment for inappropriate behavior responses only slightly weakened the association between said stimulus and response Ooh, that's kind of a teaser for an upcoming episode Ooh, it is a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> and the law of exercise essentially suggested that behavior is more strongly established through frequent connections of that stimulus to the associated response and he later determined that the law of exercise really wasn't, it didn't apply in all cases. It wasn't valid every single time. So that one was not as enduring as the law of effect initially. Mm -hmm. And kind of a big deal. His dissertation was actually the first in psychology where subjects were non-humans. Right. And there was, there was a lot of, it'd be interesting to talk about because when we, at some point we've discussed going over the Pavlov experiment with the dogs and the salivating. And of course, most people have heard of this in some capacity or another over time. It's one of the more famous experiments in history. And prior to understanding that animals have these um, these reflexes to and reactions to environmental stimuli, animals were often regarded almost like automatons, like these little machines, uh, which is kind of interesting. So that'll, it'll be cool to go into that more when we get to the early research on uh, Pavlovian conditioning, also called respondent conditioning, also called classical conditioning, various ways of describing it. So anyway, going back to Thorndike, as we mentioned, he, he completed his PhD at Columbia University in 1898 under the supervision of James McKean Cattell. And interestingly, James McKean Cattell was one of the first psychologists to teach in the United States and is considered one of the founding fathers of psychometrics. Would actually be kind of a cool episode on its own because this is it's an entire field that still exists. And uh, psychometrics is essentially the study of how to measure psychological data, which is, I, I think, a really fascinating and important element of understanding psychology and how we use that to interpret and, I guess, analyze human behavior. Mm -hmm. Super neat topic. And so uh, Thorndike, he worked for a short time at the College of Women of Case Western Reserve, but then he ended up returning to Columbia University where he became an instructor in psychology at the Teachers College, and he remained there for the rest of his career. While there, he studied human learning, education, and mental testing. Um, so uh, here's a quick fun fact. In the early stages of, of his career, he purchased land on the Hudson and encouraged other researchers to settle nearby. Eventually, a colony had formed with Thorndike sort of as their quote-unquote tribal chief <laughs> sort of thing. Um, almost has a little bit of implied racism in there, but eventually, essentially, he was seen sort of as their... Uh, as their collective leader in their their little uh, research cult there. So, so. a little, yeah. <laughs> Science commune, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um. So Thorndike's work on 
animal behavior and the learning process led to this theory of connectionism. And this theory states that behavioral responses to specific stimuli are established through a process of trial and error. And this affects neural connections between the stimuli and the most satisfying responses. So he was actually one of the early pioneers in behaviorism and behaviorism research, specifically with learning and in, again, using animals in these uh, clinical experiments. Mm -hmm. And Thorndike, he was really interested in whether animals could learn through imitation or observational learning. Right, which we'll get into when we describe the actual experiment that he did, which in which he was trying to, again, study whether or not animals could observe other behavior and then learn from uh, their their peers, if you will. I think it's worth covering. You know, I've said this before, but I almost think that you could play a drinking game with how often I say I think it's worth that could be. (laughs) (laughs) If anyone wants a why we do what we do drinking game. Yeah, just I... It's not, I don't do it on purpose, but. (laughs) It could be, yeah, for what it's worth, or this would be a great episode topic. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. (laughs) Oh, no, everybody is in the ER getting their stomach pumped. All right. Well, all right. So (laughs) Thorndike, that early work that he did with animals later influenced other works from important um, psychologists. One of the more notable ones that we talked about in our episode was John B. Watson, who is famous for the Little Albert experiment. You can go back and listen to that episode if you haven't heard it yet um, or already and you would like to go hear it, which is a fun one. Uh, and, uh, And so in Watson's book in 1914, called Behavior, an Introduction to Comparative Psychology. Um, He used boxes based on Thorndike's cat puzzle box, which we'll go over in a moment, uh, for lab rats to mimic real life sort of learning tasks. Yeah, and Watson actually became really adept at taming rats and found that he could train them to do things like open a puzzle box, um, just like Thorndike's uh, for small food reward. Now, one major difference in their setups was that Watson rejected this idea of Thorndike's law of effect and instead denied that pleasure and discomfort was the main variable that was responsible for resulting in that stimulus response association that the animal or as they would extrapolate the people learned. Yeah, and for Watson, he said that the frequency of occurrence of the stimulus-response pairings was really the only thing that was important. So essentially, how many times they were associated with one another. Um, right, and so Watson's research the, um, and his complete rejection of this idea of mentalism and, I guess, psychic constructs um, that he believed were inherent in Thorndike's description of the law of effect led to him... Uh, doing that little Albert experiment. That and, I mean, many other things that were going on in psychology at the time. Uh, And then we get to Skinner. Uh, Skinner was heavily influenced by Thorndike and just a brief history. So in 1938, B.F. Skinner published his most influential work on animal behavior called The Behavior of Organisms. Which I have actually read. And it is... uh, Oh, look at you. Yeah, there's a lot... I haven't gotten to that one yet. (laughs) uh, There's a lot of very specific experimental descriptions in that book, but it is pretty interesting, especially to see how the concepts in behaviorism were at the time that that was published and how some of the concepts have sort of changed. You will recognize that some of those terms aren't really used anymore. Um, But a lot of it really holds up pretty well. It's it's actually pretty cool to see that how much that has endured over time. And Skinner sort of resurrected this idea of the law of effect in a way, um, but he used it in much more sort of objective and as one might describe it, including Skinner himself, more behavioral terms. He also um, developed technology that would actually show how um, sequences of behavior produced over a long time could be studied objectively. And this is 
called a Skinner box. And it was also a specific measurement technology that would be fun to maybe go over at some point called a cumulative recorder, which was really just a way of looking at behavior as it occurred in the moment and using a specific a mechanical device to measure that so that it was not prone to the human sub- the subjective human element. Absolutely. And the Skinner box was definitely a great improvement on Thorndike's cat box, and it improved upon the individual learning trials of Thorndike and Watson. And this led to the, I guess, creation and development of the concept that was in fact coined by Skinner called operant conditioning, which is often um, well known as the sort of positive reinforcement, negative reinforcement. That's That all comes from that, um, that theory. So Thorndike, pretty big deal within the behavioral psychology tradition. Now, we've alluded a lot to this experiment that Thorndike did and how it influenced others. Um, So let's go ahead and dig into how this experiment was actually set up. So in the interest of studying how animals learn, and at this point in in history, if they learn at all, this wasn't even clear yet, uh, Thorndike created an apparatus called a puzzle box. The puzzle boxes were approximately 20 inches long, 15 inches wide, and 12 inches tall. And so if you want to try and imagine this, in case you use, you don't use the imperial system or you can't really figure out about what size that would be, this is about the exact right size for a cat or maybe a chihuahua or maybe a couple of pairs of shoes to fit inside that's about the size of the box. Yeah, and each box contained a door, and attached to the door was a string that led to a lever or a button inside of the box. And so when the lever or that button or whatever was pulled or pushed, whatever happened with that device, the string would then cause a weight to lift, and again, that was attached to the door so that the door would open. So again, if this thing, whatever it was, was pressed, then the door would open. Exactly, and animal behavior was measured in how much time it would take the animal to perform the response. That is, you know, pulling the lever or pushing the button. And then he also measured how much time it took the animal to escape from the box. Now, once the animal escaped from the box, they were also usually given access to some kind of food as a reward. And Thorndike primarily used cats in his puzzle boxes. And the cats would be put into the cages, and in the start, they would wander around kind of meow, um, just meowing their little hearts out. And then, so they didn't really know how to escape until they eventually, by some sort of chance, they stepped on the switch that was placed on the floor of the box. And often, we'll go into this in a moment, but they would not necessarily recognize that having stepped on the button would result in the door opening. So going back into the box, they would not initially pick up on that right away. Thorndike was interested in the beginning in the extent to which animals could learn from observing other animals. And so what he would do is he'd place another cat into the box, or at least in a place where it could observe the cat that's in the the puzzle box, and that it, so that it could observe the cat as the cat was learning to escape from the box. And then what he would do is place that cat that was just the observer. He would put that in the puzzle box and compare the rate of learning to those animals who... Uh, who had been in the box initially. So he was comparing how long it took them to learn to get out of the box from the cat who just watched versus the cat who had the actual experience in the box that and the cat from the actual experience had learned from that trial and error. And what he found, interestingly, was that there was no difference in their rate of learning, implying that uh, observing did not have any meaningful effect on how well a cat learned to escape from the box. They had to do that trial and error experience. Yeah, and in addition, he saw these same results with other animals, and he even found that prompting the animal by placing their paw on the correct lever or button, it actually did not increase correct responding. Yeah, which may, 
it's interesting. I was kind of wondering about why that might be the case. And I think that possibly usually when you try and force a cat, for example, to do something, it's going to try and resist whatever you're forcing it to do. Um, pro- probably people have had that experience before. Um, and so there's not necessarily going to be connection, the connection for the animal between um, what the animal did and the outcome because the animal wasn't necessarily voluntarily doing it. It was more like this other creature over here, this human creature did something and the door opened and we don't know what that something is but at least i'm out of the box like that i think is how the cat might be oriented to that sort of situation so as you sort of pointed out this really did lead him back to back to the idea that observational learning was not necessarily something that was being demonstrated at least in this particular experimental arrangement and that instead trial and error was the most reasonable explanation for how animals learn Yeah, and his recording of the animal's escapes and their escape times, meaning the time it took the animal to press the lever or button to escape, it led him to graphing the trials, and this resulted in the learning curve. Right, so essentially if you think about, if you were to plot that curve on a graph where each point on the graph is how long it took to escape on the sort of y-axis, the up and down axis, if you put a a dot there and that's um, that says the higher it is, the longer it took him to get out out of the box. And then each subsequent dot was a new trial. And so there's the second and third and fourth time and so on. And each time that that dot got put on there, the the animal, the creature, whatever, in this particular case, the cat, but this this also would apply to people, that each time that it's practiced, it would get a little bit faster and they get a, a little bit better at it so it wouldn't take as long to solve whatever that thing was and if you and on a graph again if you can imagine as those dots are going down because it takes less time to to complete whatever this task um, that gets shorter and shorter until it goes about as fast as it would normally go you would see that it would have this curve that initially it takes a long time and then a pretty steep drop off as it gets faster and faster and then reaches sort of that terminal um, that terminal length, uh, also called an asymptote, in terms of how uh, it's, and that's where the sort of the curve of the of the graph would sort of flatten out. So this picture, this trend on the graph of improved time, was described as learning curve. And as we discussed earlier, we're not exactly sure who coined that term, but Thorndike was um, certainly one of the first people to really illustrate it. Right. And so this this graph that essentially, again, it just depicted the number of seconds it took for an animal to escape and uh, on for each trial of being put in the box. And the general shape of the curve was similar for each different species. And the different species varied on kind of how fast they learned and where their performances leveled off. But each species produced this very clear S-shaped learning curve. Yeah. So interestingly... The curve looks different depending on the way you, well, it makes sense, but depending on the way that you orient the axes on the graph, depending on the kind of mathematical model you use to um, average those points on the graph, because really it's going to be a little bit sort of jagged. It's not going to be a smooth curve until you've averaged everything together. But what you might look at instead is not how long it took to get out, but how quickly they got out. And so it would look like instead it increased. Either way, you get sort of this this uh, this gentle curve that either looks sort of like an S or almost like a a backwards J sort of thing curving. It, it depends on on how you orient the graph. Um, but as you said, he he looked at this with different animals, including fish, chickens, as we mentioned, cats, dogs, monkeys, all looking at sort of similar tasks. And the puzzle box, of course, was designed and individualized for each type of species so that the animal could actually perform the response. You obviously put a fish in a box. It's not going to do much other than suffocate and die. 
Yeah, and the curve definitely resembled um, like a classical conditioning acquisition curve, which I'm so sure is something we'll describe more at length once we get around to that Pavlov episode. <laughs> <laughs> right, and so it kind of looks like essentially what you see in the data is that the animal starts to sort of catch on, if you will, to what's going on. And once they do, then the the time at which it takes for them to escape or to solve whatever that puzzle box is, it improves pretty quickly um, until, again, it reaches that asymptote where the data sort of level off. Yeah, and relating to the cat box, so each cat had difficulty escaping at first, but each eventually stumbled on the secret of opening it, and on succeeding trials, the cat was able to get out faster and faster. And the performance ends up leveling off when it can't really escape any faster than it had the times before. Now, there's a couple of things going on inside of this experiment and how this is arranged in terms of why would the cat want out of the box? Well, it turns out that unless you have an open cardboard box, cats don't really like being shut in boxes all that much. Um, matter of fact, they don't like being closed in spaces at all uh, for the most part. And so most creatures, when they're uh, confined to a space that they can't get out of, will generally try and find a way out. So there is... Um, there's a couple of things that although they often got access to the food upon getting out, it's possible that escape from the box itself was enough of a reward that they would have learned. Uh, but adding in that food as a consequence would also probably facilitate uh, getting out of the box as sort of the more positive uh, reward rather than just getting rid of the being confined to a box. So he described this this element of them learning the association between pressing the lever and getting out of the box with inside of this law of effect. He, he described this as stamping in the relation, which is to say that it became sort of impressed on the, the mind or the brain of the animal in such a way that it just became part of their skill set to do it. And that was the, the way that he described it was this stamping in thing, learning from the outcome. So there were definitely some flaws identified um, within Thorndike's law of effect. Right. Now, in the 1920s, some of the initial push of research that had been done in behaviorism, thinking specifically about Watson and Thorndike, um, this was not gaining as it did not uh, maintain as much popularity as it had had when they were initially published um, and being put out sort of into the world. And a number of studies specifically from Edward Tolman's Berkeley lab, which have a whole episode planned coming up relatively soon on Tolman's research as well, um, ap appeared to show what some of the flaws of the law of effect were. And Tolman really argued that in order to explain some of the animal's behavior without including that food reward thing, this is essentially what he was pointing out with the flaws, that you had to explain their learning through mental representations and other sort of psychological or mental um, cognitive phenomenon to, again, to explain how they were able to do these things when you took away that uh, food piece and you still saw that they were learning from those, uh, that situation. And we will get into it more within that later episode, but just briefly. So an example of Tolman's experiments, one might be that, you know, that rats were allowed to explore a maze that had three routes of different lengths between the starting position and then the goal. And then the rat's behavior when the maze was blocked implied that they must have some sort of mental map of the maze. So essentially in this experiment, Tolman showed that just letting the rats roam around the maze, um, they would often be able to solve that maze um, without necessarily including that food reward. Um, although you could affect how well they did it with the food reward, they would still be able to do it um, with it either absent or reduced. And therefore suggesting that, at least to him, the law of effect wasn't necessary to account for learning and how that worked. 
But I just like to sort of say, like, I, I just thought this was really interesting when I learned about this initially and going over this. It's fun to be able to look back in history and appreciate where this idea of the learning curve comes from. So I often hear about this in terms of things like video games, that someone will pick up a video game and they'll ask, well, what's the learning curve? Or they might say, this has a really steep learning curve. And what that implies is usually that it's going to be really difficult to figure out how to play for a while, right? And it's suggesting that it'll be eventually it'll get really easy. Whereas something that has um, a really quick learning curve would imply that you figure out how to play pretty quickly and then you're able to just sort of navigate that with no problem. And um, and that's true of a lot of different things. And really any anything that requires practice, which is most things that we do, um, <laughs> the idea that the, this description of what the learning curve and where this comes from, again, this originally was described by Ebbinghaus, but where this comes from is that the line of research, including things with Ebbinghaus and others and up through and including Thorndike's experiment with the cats to show that repeated exposure, the trial and error thing, um, accounts for at least some elements of learning. And as we'll talk about in other episodes and other topics, there are other things that facilitate or account for learning and how it works. And this is still a useful concept. And even though people don't necessarily really talk about or use the idea of the law of effect anymore, what it evolved into in operant conditioning and that sort of thing is still very much present. Like it, it was on the cusp of becoming a really important theory. It just was not quite there. It, it was missing a couple of pieces, but it led to other research, which has sort of stood the test of time and has become implemented and used in a lot of different settings. So uh, Thorndike wasn't necessarily wrong at all. As a matter of fact, he made a really valuable contribution. And I just think it's really cool to always revisit these historical things like Thorndike and also like Watson, if you know, we're going over these that have these far reaching implications across time and how they influenced other major uh, thinkers and researchers inside of psychology. So that's sort of why I wanted to tackle this, this one today. Great. No, I think I agree. I think it's really worthwhile to um, delve into the history of, of certain schools of psychology and kind of identify, you know, the underpinnings and, and where the the philosophy and the principles really, really come from. And Thorndike is definitely an exemplar of that. So, I mean, that's pretty much all we have uh, on this experiment, which, so this is a, a awesome sort of short episode, which is cool. And, uh, and so I think just some major take home points of, you know, if you walk away with nothing else from this episode, some things that I think are useful to remember are that, First, there are several people that had actually noted the fact that people and animals tend to learn faster as they practice things. So that sort of trial and error uh, approach. Yeah. And so, you know, first described by Ebbinghaus, Thorndike's experiment with putting cats in the box really formally demonstrated the learning curve and led to the development of the law of effect. And as we know, this later contributed to further refinement within behavioral and psychological understanding of why we do what we do. Nice. Yes. <laughs> Although, you know, as we mentioned, you know, the law of effect isn't part of really a contemporary psychology theory. And the principles proposed therein are, are very much still a part of psychological theory. Yeah, but it all goes to show that some good can actually come of putting cats in boxes. Just kidding. <laughs> be nice. Yeah. Be, ni- be nice to your cats. Don't put them in boxes. Um, but yeah, so that's uh, that's pretty much all we have on this one. Do you have anything else to talk about with respect to Thorn- Thorndike or the learning curve? I think we I think we covered it, and hope I hope people found um, this little history lesson interesting. Yeah, I think it's some some cool stuff. So, mm-hmm. all right, well, let's go on to a short piece of listener mail. 
Um, so we got an email from a listener named Stefan Sandberg. He he actually mostly requested a bunch of uh, topics that he would like to hear us talk about. He asked, um, we mentioned before that we want to do an episode on twin studies. He sent us a bunch of articles for that. Um, another episode on behavioral genetics, um, which we actually really just talked about essentially genes and how they influence behavior and, and behavioral genetics and genetic determinism could are, are sort of a more specific topic that would be great to cover, um, as well as um, neuroscience and how the field of behavior analysis relates to neuroscience and, and provided some um, articles for that. And so he said, hey guys, love your show. We heard Miranda and Abraham talk about the possibility of um, upcoming topics and requested those ones. Uh, He said, we're both going to university. Uh, Moa, who is the the person he refers to in the we, I guess here, uh, to be a psychologist and myself to be a preschool teacher. Well, we'll love the episodes where you dive in and try and explain commonly held conceptions about human behavior. And then also requested a subsequent episode on intelligence, which this is like, I don't even know how many it's requests a, we got. Yeah, it's, <laughs> a, it's a hot commodity. It's a hot request. Yeah. So. And and uh, looking at it again from that, um, the field of behavior analysis and some of the research that's been done there on intelligence. So uh, I think that, that that request has been made enough times that that I hear that. And I'm going to put that on the list uh, for an episode to cover. Yeah. Absolutely. And so uh, that was from uh, Stefan and Moa. Uh, I, I hope I said your names correctly. Thank you very much for the resources and the kind words. Um, those will definitely be really helpful in moving forward with uh, developing some of those uh, those topics and episodes, which um, we're happy to take take those on. We have we have a, a really long list of topics we like to take on, but honestly, it's it's very flattering when people make these requests. It indicates that you trust us with the topic, and so you know I, I really appreciate the the requests and and they're noted. They'll put them on the list, and hopefully, we'll get to those in a timely manner. Um, often, we sort of tackle things in terms of who's available to cover them and when we're available to record and uh, how much time it's going to take to prep for those uh, episodes and that sort of thing. So, uh, but just know that, that we will get there and we've got plenty of time as long as we're alive. We'll be, (laughs) we'll have the time, I think. Thanks Moa and Stefan. And we have another thank you again this week, a big thanks to Brittany Bowerly and Brittany Marie DeSanti for their research and writing on this episode. They're very invaluable as part of the team and we really appreciate all of their help. And thank you, Miranda, for your production and edits that you will be doing on this week's episode. And Abraham, thank you for just being you. That's what I bring to the table here. Yeah. <laughs> you. And th- <laughs> thank you, listeners, for being a part of this today. Um, if you're interested in making requests or, uh, or having other comments or feedback, then please feel free to reach out to us. Uh, info at podcast or any of the other platforms that we'll read in the end credits of, the, of this episode. So um, that is all I have for today. And so this is Abraham. This is Miranda. And we're out. You've been listening to Why We Do What We Do. Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by our amazing patrons. Thank you. If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast. You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.wwdpodcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O., Shane, and Miranda. 
Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brasier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day.